Hi, everyone. I'm on vacation this week, and so I won't be releasing an interview or an Ask Me Anything episode, but I'll be back next week. In the meantime, you get a special treat. My men's group, The Council, includes as one of the perks audio recordings of my ongoing Bible study. I read through Psalms, Proverbs, the Old Testament, and the New Testament in order. Right now, we've completed Exodus and John and have moved on to Leviticus and Acts. And so the episode that you're about to listen to includes a couple of those audio recordings. I've selected Proverbs 18 and a double episode featuring John chapters 17 and 18. These are both pretty typical in terms of length and content, and I think they both have a lot to say about how men can properly understand brotherly affection towards each other. And readings like this are crucial today as men are relearning how to relate to each other after decades of social atomization. So keep in mind while you're listening that I'm not a pastor. I'm just a man reading the Bible and sharing what I'm getting from it. It's actually been a fascinating journey for me to read through scripture and then verbally process it for the men in the group. I think there's something about having to communicate what I'm reading that makes everything feel more real as well. And so I encourage every man and woman listening to explore how you can do the same. If you'd like to join the council, you can visit renofmen.com slash council to learn more and sign up to be part of a solid group of men. I got to hang out with several members of the council in Dallas. It was absolutely awesome. Also, I've been meaning to tell you that you all are almost definitely not drinking enough coffee. I didn't want to say anything, but yeah, you're going to have to work on that. So be sure to visit reformationcoffee.com and sign up for a new monthly subscription. You can use the code SUBFREE to get one free 12-ounce bag of coffee on the house. As I said, I'll be back next week with an Ask Me Anything episode and then resuming my interviews the following week. I'm looking forward to an incredible fall season with some guests you won't want to miss. So until then, happy Labor Day. Enjoy the last warm rays of summer, and I'll see you on the other side of the long weekend. All right, now we're in Proverbs 18. This is awesome. This one is full of so much wisdom. I could pull out so many different pieces. There's a lot in here about speech. So it starts in verse two, a fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. Verse four, the words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. Verse six, a fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows, right? Verse seven, a fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are the snare of his soul. That's intense. That a man builds a trap for himself with his own lips. And I can think of many cases where that's the case. This is good instruction for us as men to be careful about the things that we say. I try to be careful about the things that I say. I'm not perfect. No man is. But I try very hard to maintain my integrity with my words, to not talk about things I don't understand or don't know, or at least to be very clear that, like, for example, in these recordings, I am not a pastor. This is my own journey through Scripture, and I'm articulating my own thoughts. And again, I, I urge every man listening to not take this as instruction from a pastor and to find yourself a good church to be a part of so you can be under proper discipleship. These are my own thoughts as a man, which I hope have value. Because our mouths is our ruin. Text messages. How many text messages do we see every year in the media that blow up relationships between people, right? All these things. We have to be very careful what we say, what we say because our, a fool's mouth is our ruin and our lips are the snare of our souls. We have to be very careful about that.
Verse 8, the words of a whisper are like dainty morsels and they go down into the innermost parts of the body. This is about gossip, right? Like, we have to be very careful when we start feeling that, ooh, that's a little tidbit that we've just been gossiped to. And um, knowing gossips, you know, it's having met, if you've met a gossip, if you've met someone who shares something with you about someone else, right? If you've met someone who gossips to you, guess what? They're also gossiping about you. So be very careful with that. Be very careful with that. Verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Again, more speech, the name of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Psalm, uh, Psalm 88, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Humility and humiliation are not the same. Humility is understanding your place in the grand scheme of things, to recognize that you're not that big of a deal. Even historically, you're not that big of a deal. You are still man. You are not God. Humiliation is to be placing yourself lower than another man in worth. Humility is to simply be on the ground in the dirt with all of all the rest of mankind. Humiliation is to say, I am lower than that man. And there are ways in which we can defile ourselves, and maybe that would be true. But in reality, we're all sinners in need of a savior. And no man is technically in this way lower than another man. We're all equally made in the image of God. So rather than thinking yourself lower than another man in terms of worth, naturally, like in terms of hierarchies of competence, of course, you know, but in terms of soul worth, humiliation is to say, like, I am, I am worth less than this human being. And I don't think that's true. There are ways we can be ashamed of ourselves, which is appropriate, but to be stuck in this place of like, oh, I'm worth less. For example, men do this, men will do this with height. This is one of the, this is one of the tragic things uh, uh, that happens, I think, in a lot of men's souls over the issue of how tall they are, is they will, uh, and, and it happens for women too with beauty, like it, and, and it happens for people with money, like there's all, all these different ways that it shows up. There is a way in which people who are born in a certain set of circumstances, born with a certain set of things about themselves they can't change, skin color is part of this as well, um, will think that they are somehow worth less as human beings because they have this aspect of themselves that they can't change, right? So it's like they'll be ashamed of themselves, like shorter men will be ashamed of themselves, and they have no reason to be ashamed of themselves. I get, believe me, I get it, um, but they're equally made in the image of God, and you find glory and beauty in the way that God made you. Um, and, and, and that is where you find a true, a true man in that, or someone who's ashamed of uh, some other aspect of themselves, like some, some deformity. Like, can you, can you allow God to redeem that, right? If you were born to a poor family, which you can't control, some people carry very intense shame because they think that there's something broken about them because they were born to a huge, uh, uh, they're worth less because they're born into a poor family. That's humiliation. And we are not meant to experience humiliation, rather redemption in Christ um, and, the, and the God who made us. And so it's really important for men to understand the difference between humility, humility and humiliation, because we are called to be humble, and that's a good thing. And many men conflate humility and humiliation and walk around with their shoulders bowed, and that's not what humility is. Verse 13, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him right? Listen, listen and respond thoughtfully. <laughs> um, and then we'll go to um, 
We'll go to the first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Very, very important. Verse 19, a brother offended is harder to be won than a strong city and contentions are like the bars of a citadel, right? This is how relationships end. And so it's very important to carry on our relationships in a spirit of reconciliation. With the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied. He will be satisfied with the product of his lips. All right. You made your bed, now lie in it, right? Death and life, verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Very important. Very, very important. I try. I've gotten better at this over the years because I've learned, I've learned this firsthand. Long before I knew there was a scripture verse about this, I experienced how there was death in the power of the tongue. And so what I try to do is to create life um, as much as I can with my tongue. I think you feel that. I don't always do a great job, um, but it's something that I've gotten way, way better at over time. And this is a responsibility that we as men all have to come into, is recognizing the power that we have in our words, not just to be the snare of our soul, you know, not just, um, not just, uh, there was something else. There was the, there's another verse, not just gossip, right? The dainty morsels, but also because we have, but also because we have the ability to create death and life with our tongue for others and in the world. And this is why I say that a, a broken word, um, men who give their word and break it damage the universe. I've experienced this so many times of men who have given their word and then they go back on their word or they forget or they just break their, break their vow. And I think it damages the universe somehow and creates death when life could have been created between two people. So this is how, this is one of the ways that death and life are in the power of the tongue. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. The poor man utters supplications, but the rich man answers roughly. A man of too many friends, verse 24, comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And for that, I would like to refer you back to Psalm 17. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. And so for the men listening to this, the words friend and brother get thrown around a lot in this dialogue about masculinity. And the reality is that the people in it are not friends because they do not love for all times. And men will call each other brother and vanish at the slightest sign of adversity. And so um, for me, I'm going to stop using these words unless a man is truly a friend. I will call, I will call a, I, I will say that I am a friend to a man and I am making a promise that when I say that to a man, I will love at all times, but I won't call men brother anymore unless I plan on sticking by them in the field of adversity. I remember I, I knew a guy who was a former Marine and I called him brother and he got really mad at me. And I was like, whoa, 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 slow down. But he was saying, you know, brother meant something very meaningful to him because he, he had been in combat in Iraq. And I was like, totally get it, man. I didn't mean anything by it. You know, I respected that and I understood why he was coming, coming at me that way. I was like, look, I was just using it casually. And there is a way we are at risk of, we are at risk of, um, are at risk of um, using the word brother too casually uh, because we've lost, because the word acquaintance doesn't feel right. So maybe we need an expanded vocabulary of relations, something between acquaintance and colleague, right? Like we can be friendly without being friends. We can be brotherly without being brothers. We can become brothers 
we can become friends. We can graduate from friendly acquaintances or brotherly acquaintances to actual brothers and friends. But I think throwing the words brother and friend around too casually now um, dishonors us all because we should take these words seriously. Because Proverbs says, a friend loves at all times. That is the definite, from Proverbs perspective, that is the definition of a friend. From Proverbs perspective, a brother is born for adversity. So you can be, you can be a friend to a man, right? You can be a a friend to a man and you can love him and, and you two can be friends. But when I'm going through adversity, I'm not going to call on my friends. I'm going to call on my brothers. We are born for adversity. And we don't have too many of those in life. We should be blessed to have more than one or a few. Um, so um, think about that in your relations because um, a man of too many friends in, in Proverbs 18, a man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This may, this may, um, this may refer to God. This may refer to Christ. It, it doesn't not refer to them. Um, but there's a book by Michel de Montaigne, the French author, that's called On Friendship. I think I have it on my shelf somewhere. Probably didn't give it away. Or I should find it. I can't see it. But, um, oh, I know where it is. Um, and that's a really important book to read about the real, the real friendship, brotherhood, this closeness that can exist between men. And so I've had it for a while, and I've read some of the passages from it, so I need to pick it up. But we need a, a reevaluation of what it means to be friends and brothers. We need to reevaluate that word and have it be a binding commitment, like the word wife is a binding commitment, because we have all these social relationships around us that we call friends and that we call brothers. But can we actually rely on them in the day of adversity? Are they actually going to love us at all times? More, more often than not, the answer is no. Um, that has been my experience. And so, um, I've become very skeptical. Now, look, people go their separate ways. I've had men in my life where we were best friends and we grow and and we change and the parting is natural and and the parting is gentle. And it's like, oh, okay, we just go separate ways as opposed to like, hey, like you just vanished on me, right? Like you can feel that difference. Like, for example, my friend, uh, my friend, Eddie, he lives in New Zealand. You may have heard me mention it before. Like we were super close, like, especially like we met in 2019, he's responsible for me escaping from New Zealand. We were next, we were like, even though we were across the Pacific ocean, um, he lives, still lives in New Zealand during COVID. We were talking every night. I was going for walks and we're sending long voice notes and like, we were there for each other. And so now I feel like his life is going a certain direction and so is mine. And we don't talk as often as we once did, but it's not as if, it's not as if like, where are you at, bro? Right. Um, and perhaps we all have brothers like that with changing of physical circumstances. It may not be possible to have a, a brother, you know, who's that far away. I don't know who's remotely distant. We probably should have our friends and brothers in person, but we are at risk of, of using these words. Um, we're at risk of using these words too much. And that's how I've been hurt. Um, just being honest. And I think that's how many men have been hurt is not knowing who their friends and brothers are. So I encourage the men listening to, um, be more thoughtful about how they would deploy these words in terms of their relationships to others. Like we can't say to another man, um, you are my brother, right? You can say, I consider you my brother. I am a brother to you. We can say that. Like I can't describe the inner state of another man. 
Like, oh, that guy is my friend. Really? Does he think that about me? Meaning that a friend loves at all times? Um, oh, you're my brother. Like, really? Does he think that about me? Is he born for adversity? No. I can say, I am a brother to you. Or I would like to be a brother to you. Or I would like to be a friend to you. You can announce your own inner state. Like, the door is open for me to offer this to you. And a man can accept that or not. But we should be very careful about just because a man says that he's a friend, just a man because he's a man, a man says that he's a brother, like you will know the truth of that or not, and not to be casual about it. And life will, will life will prove that bond. Life will prove that bond. And I think in, in public, particularly in Christian Twitter, there's a lot of men who have called themselves friends, called themselves brothers in Christ, and they sure don't act like it. So, um, so there's a, probably a lot to think about in here, um, but. Um, Let's all, I don't have a problem with men using these words and I don't, please don't use this as, a, as an excuse to police the speech, especially in this group. However, um, to, in your everyday life, be thinking about who your actual friends are. Be thinking about who you are a friend to. Be thinking about who your brothers are and who you are a brother to. And, and I would say raise the standards and scripture calls us to raise the standards and then go looking for the friend who sticks closer than a brother, which it is entirely possible that is a person as an actual man um it's also possible that it refers to god and and uh, of course this is proverbs so it may it may also prefigure christ i think you can read it that way for sure all right thanks guys and last but not least for the day john 17 and 18 now this is um these are beautiful passages i mean it's it's really um, it's really something special to witness this, particularly um, John 17. So I want to call your attention to um, chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So remember that Judas has left. Judas has left and is going to the Romans. And so in John 17, Jesus is praying over the remaining 11 disciples. I mean, they're his friends. They're, they're his bros. You know, Peter and all of them, they've, they've all walked together. They all loved him. They're his closest friends. Yes, they can be knuckleheads because they don't exactly get what's going on. Um, but this is a group of 11 very close friends who love Jesus very, very much um, in a way that it's clear if you read between the lines with the way Jesus speaks about them. Um, so you have um, verse six, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. Jesus is praying that these 11 brothers, as Jesus prepares to leave and go to his, and go to his destiny, that these 11 brothers be one in the same way that Jesus is one with the Father. 
I want to go back to um, verse 4, verse 3, actually. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He was referring to himself in the third person. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. I'm done. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. I think I might have had those backwards, but the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Like, John didn't make that up. Like, John wrote that. I mean, of course, it was divinely inspired, but Jesus says that about himself. The glory I had with you before the world was. Everything mine is yours. Everything yours is mine. You know. And then if you actually go back, this is, this is the doctrine of the Trinity. When people say the Trinity isn't in the Bible, you can find it in John chapter 16 and 17. I mean, you can find it in many other places, but when you see the helper, right? Uh, chapter 16, verse 8, and when he comes, and he, when he comes, meaning the helper, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me and concerning righteousness because I go to see the Father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. So between John 16 and 17, you see the Trinity. Again, it's not spelled out. You know, they're, like scripture isn't, isn't necessarily always a manual. Sometimes through good and, ne- good and necessary inference, you have to put the pieces together. And that's part of the joy of the journey of faith is learning to see for yourself. And so here in chapter 17, you have Jesus talking about his union with the Father and his existence before the world was. So um, I want to read I want to read um, verse 13, verse 12 going forward. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me. And I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, Judas, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have, they, he's talking about his disciples, his 11 bros, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. This is Jesus Christ praying to God for these things for his disciples. Feel the gravity of that. This is how much God incarnate loves his brothers. And you can go back again. This is, you know, descendant of David. And you see the flowing emotion that David shows. Jesus was not this ethereal floating six inches off the ground kind of thing. You can read between the lines here that, that he knows he's about to go suffer and die. And he's praying in front of his bros for his bros that they may have his joy made full in themselves. What, what a gift. What gift. And put yourself in, 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 in a similar position. You're out to dinner, you know, with 11 of your, 11, 11 of your closest friends. Say you have 11 close friends. And you have the opportunity to give a toast and pray for them. Like, what would it mean to you to be able to say this to them? Could you get these words out? Could you make a similar prayer? We get choked up. When, when grooms at weddings give toasts to the, to the people who have assembled to honor the wedding, they get choked up. They're offering a blessing. And this is Jesus is doing with his closest brothers. 
offering the blessing. I, verse 14, I've given them your word and the word, world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So recognizing that there'll be a great nation that flows through these men. And they're all men, no women, <laughs> no women pastors. That they may, that they may be, that, oh, sorry, those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. These have known. They get it. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. That's his final words before they left. The love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. The gift of himself in their hearts. And this was not said just Jesus as God. It was also Jesus as man. It's both. He loved his friends. He was not shy of giving of the bounty of love that he felt for his friends. And they were not shy of receiving. So it doesn't say the men hid their faces because they were embarrassed. They gave and received love from each other as brothers freely. And even earlier, you can go back. Um, Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. Chapter 15, verse 13. It's what he's about to do for his friends. Verse, chapter 13, verse 23, there was reclining on Jesus's bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Like he's just leaning up against Jesus's bosom. There's no shame in this about the love that these men are showing to each other. Like, oh, uh, you know, I don't want to, you know, don't want to seem like that. It's like, these were manly men. These were fishermen. These were very capable dudes. Jesus was a carpenter. These were laborers. He was a laborer they had a very different understanding of the meaning of men showing love and brotherhood to each other than we're allowed to have today. And connect this with David, his full expression of emotions from depression, you know, sadness, grief, up to joy, awaking the dawn, up to smash their teeth in their mouth, rage, pleading, this full spectrum humanity. And you see this manifested in Jesus. You love The love with which you loved me, God, may be in them and I in them. And then you go to the betrayal. 
verse 4, chapter 18. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him. This is the Roman cohort and officers with lanterns and torches in the dark of night, super legit, not legit. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he, Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Boom. Voice of God knocks him down. No one get, I do not, no one takes my life from me. I give it up, right? <laughs> You're not taking me if I don't want you to take me because I just said, I am he and knocked you to the ground. He fell back, drew back and fell to the ground. <laughs> like he speaks and they fall down, <laughs> right? That's what's going on here. And then you have Peter's, um, you have Jesus before the priest, you have Peter's denial. Um, verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus, so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. I think this refers to John. This is how John is re reporting what he saw. He's reporting Peter's denial. I'd also like to point out that um, in, in uh, John 17, as Jesus is praying for his followers, his disciples, there is no prior to that prayer that points out Peter specifically as having any status higher than any of the other disciples. He prays for them as one. He does not say, and I give you Peter as your leader, or I give you Peter as higher status. He does not say that. It's all 11 men, Jesus being in all of them equally, and all of them being as one. That would have been a really good moment for him to say, and Peter's your guy. He didn't say that. Really important. And then immediately after that, you see Peter's denial of Jesus. Actually, chapter 18, verse 10, Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the father has given me, shall I not drink it? And Peter, and then Peter denies Jesus three times. So Peter is the guy, so Jesus says, I'm going to my destiny earlier. And Peter says, no, Lord, you can't do that. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He says that to Peter. Peter then tries to cut off the slave's ear to protect Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, I got to go, like, should I not drink the cup that's been given to me? And then Peter denies Jesus three times. It's really important. It's really important to see this. And I, I, I was listening to a debate that Doug Wilson did about Calvinism, and uh, he was talking about how um, everything is God's will, right? Even down to the crowing of a rooster, even down to the cluck of a chicken. I think is what he said. You know that God ordains that the rooster crows three times, um, and so you see that in this chapter. And then you have Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, the, 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 uh, the Jews, take him, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Like they, I think they couldn't crucify him. Just, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? 
Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king, for I have been born, and for this I have come into this world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate says, what is truth? So immediately, Pilate is not of the truth because he can't hear Jesus' voice. I find no guilt in him, Pilate says. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So also want to just call your attention to um, verse 21. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples. Verse 20, Jesus answered him, I have spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. No secret councils, no priest class, determining doctrine. Jesus spoke directly to the people and he spoke nothing in secret. This matters. This matters. The teaching of the world, the teaching of God is to the public, directly to the public, not mediated. God himself comes down and speaks to the people personally. God gets to do that. Jesus did that. God still does that today. That's what the Bible is. God speaking to you directly, not secret counsels, debating. We need to keep this for ourselves and we'll just tell you what it says. That is not how Jesus handled it. And then I want to call and call to your attention. Verse 21, why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Don't ask me about my teaching. Ask the people. This is to the high priest. When Jesus said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus. Struck him, hit him, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus, like, bang. Jesus answered it. If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Doesn't say how he struck him. Open hand, backhand, fist. Struck the living God. <laughs> the, the, the Pharisees are asking him. The high priest is asking him. Tell me about your teaching. Jesus is like, go talk to the people. They know what's up. Dunk. So the so obviously the Pharisee didn't, the high priest, is it Caiaphas? Or is it Annas? Uh... Yeah, that was Caiaphas, the high priest that year. So Caiaphas obviously didn't take to that well. So then the, then his lieutenant, one of the officers standing by, struck Jesus. Obviously, they looked at Caiaphas would have been quite offended and Caiaphas wouldn't, wouldn't strike him. So, you know, Caiaphas makes, him, makes an angry face as Christ dunks on him again, ugly. So the guy hits him and Jesus is like, if, you've spoken, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. Why, they, why do you strike me? Dunk. It's just so glorious to see all this. Okay, so that's a lot. Read these chapters, read all of it. Glory in the Lord, praise God, hallelujah. Let me know if you have questions, guys.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.